Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. I am so thrilled to have as our guest and conversation partner, someone who actually has uh, some history as a member of St. Luke's, and we'll talk about that, and the reason we have Dr. Arthur Kellerman here is to help us reflect on uh, this horrible um, series of mass shootings we've had recently, the whole issue of gun violence, how to talk about that. And so uh, before I tell you a little bit about uh, his career and where he is right now, let me just say welcome, Art Kellerman. Thank you so much for being with us. Ed, it's a, it's a real pleasure. And to, and to be back in part of the church means the world to both Leela and me. Oh, good. Well, you are back right now. You're in the heart of St. Luke's right this second. And uh, you and I are talking with your being in Richmond, where you are, if I have it correct, you are the CEO of the Virginia Commonwealth University Health System. Sir. And that is after you've had a serious career in medicine from being trained in at the University of Washington, a time at Emory University, very deeply at Emory, and we'll come back to that, but also um, at the um, University of Tennessee and the RAND Corporation, Institute of Health, I'm sorry, where you were the director of the RAND Institute of Health. What a career. So um, do I need to tweak any of that? Uh, did I get any of that wrong? That No, you didn't. The only, I just, you know, some of us get chased from town to town and that's happened to me several times. But the, the other school that I just recently moved when I answered my call to Richmond was at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, which is the Defense Department's Leadership oh. Academy for Military Doctors. Oh. And I was there for seven years, a card-carrying civilian member of the Department of Defense, educating young men and women who wanted to be doctors, but also were willing to go anywhere in the world to care for America's service members, to do good uh, in the military and are just was a remarkable group of kids. So it was really tough to leave that place to come here, but the opportunity to come to a city with as much history, good and bad, right. as Richmond, and be part of an institution and a mission that is rewriting that history fundamentally and forever, was just too good an opportunity to pass up. Oh, indeed. Oh, we, we will definitely want to hear more about that. However, and, and thanks for that correction. I'm really glad we got that in the fullness of the story. I've read a little bit about your story, your vocational story. Vocation is such an important word to me. Will you talk about this business of how you were called into medicine and how you were called from one understanding to a deeper understanding to a focus to passion? Blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, I, I, I often, you get to a certain point in your career, young people would come to you and say, I want to be like you. How do I do that? And I go, I don't have a clue because I didn't know when I started. Uh, developing a career, developing a calling isn't about I'm going to go from here to there and navigate across the lake or across the ocean. No. I always liken it more to putting your canoe in the river and starting to paddle and there comes a rock, you hear rapids, do I go to the left of that island to go to the right? Which way? And every choice you make leads to another choice, which leads to another choice. So there's yes. some inner call that may lead you to choose left or right at a particular time, but none of us really know where we're going. And in a million years, would I have thought that I would be doing what I'm doing today? Uh, when I even thought about being a doctor, I thought I would be a family doctor in the Shenandoah Valley. That was about as close as I got to having Virginia anywhere in my career. Um, I'm here in Virginia, but in a very different role today. And it, it is an interesting story. But when I, I grew up in a little town in East Tennessee called South Pittsburgh, it's uh, the cast iron capital of the world because our family's business makes cast iron cookware and has for 125 years. And that wow. was how I grew up, uh, working summers 
in the foundry where my dad made sure I always worked the hottest and dirtiest jobs in the plant. Of course. And I like to say it inspired me to be a physician. Indeed. <laughs> because when I'd go back from college, he would punch me in the shoulder. He'd make sure that the day I got home, the next morning I'm up and I'm at the foundry. Uh, not one day of rest. Uh, and he would just joke me and say, son, if college doesn't work out, don't worry about it. You can always come back here. I love your dad. Until the, until the day when he sat down with me and said, you know, actually, seriously, I, I wonder if you, what are you planning on doing? And I said, well, dad, I love science and I love people. I think I want to be a doctor. And he kind of goes, well, um, I was kind of hoping maybe you'd come back to the foundry. And I said, dad, I'd, I'd rather have hot bamboo shoots and under, under my fingernails, the way only a son can talk to their dad. Right. And then he sighed and said, I always knew you were going to be my smart son. But I'll tell you, honestly, it was my other father that, that gave me the call. And um, the guy's name is Hiram Moore. Hiram was the town's only black doctor. And folks will remember from St. Luke's, you know, I grew up, I'm not that young. Um, Anne's laughing right now, but, um, <laughs> and I grew up in the last days of Jim Crow. I remember blacks in the balcony, whites downstairs, drinking fountains that were labeled. I mean, it was, you know, it, I was real young, but then it was just kind of normative. And Second Avenue, in, or Second Street in South Pittsburgh, to one side of Second Street was 99.9% .9 black. And on the other side of Second Street was 99.9% .9 white. It was just literally like a dividing line uh, in the town. And Hiram was the town's only black doctor. There was a small community hospital, which is where I ended up working for a couple of summers later. But at the time, but unusually, he was one of my father's best friends. And uh, they were very close. One of my father's two best friends. And Hiram was just a god in the African-American community. And he was very respected in the white community too. But he practiced alone. And I, 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 I surmise later it was because the white doctors just couldn't have him in their hospital, in their clinic. But um, I got interested in science and I was interested in people. But when I got to college, it was like hitting a brick wall. I was not ready for college work. I certainly wasn't ready for the level of college work in a good liberal arts school. And I was struggling. Here I was thinking I was going to be a pre-med. And my first year in college, at the end of my second semester, I had three hard C's, C's in inorganic chemistry lab as well, a GPA of 2.7. And back then, much less now, that was never going to get you into medical school. And I went home one night and said to dad, you know, I, I just, I don't know, I don't know. And he goes, well, you've never really sat and had a conversation with Hiram. Why don't you go up to his house tonight and talk to him? And I did. And I sat down and I just broke down. I started crying. And I said, I'm stupid. I don't even know if I should be in college. What's the stupid craziness about being a doctor? And Hiram said in this very classic Southern Black dialect, which is the way he spoke. And I think on purpose to disarm people. Uh, although he grew up, his roots were even more basic than mine, but Hiram never forgot his raising. And he goes, I, I can't tell you why you want to be a doctor, but I can tell you why I chose to be a doctor. Three hours later, I, was, I knew I had the call and I walked out five feet off the ground and just said, this is what I'm supposed to do. Wow. And you know what? I didn't make another B. Yep. Until my senior year. Mm, mm, mm. Um, but it was, it was something. And it was just, it, it was, he didn't, he didn't try to talk me into anything. He just said why he was, what he did. Right. <clears throat> he was there to take care of poor people. He was there to take care of everybody. He wasn't there to, he, he said, I take care of haters. I take care of the lonely. I take care of rich folks. He told me one time how he was on the streets of South Pittsburgh with his wife, Stella, on a Sunday morning, just left church, walking up the street in their Sunday best, and a couple with a baby carriage were going in the other direction, young white man and his wife. And he said, I stopped, I tipped my hat, and I said, good morning, Mr. Miss Smith. 
He said, they looked straight through us and just kept rolling the baby carriage. Yeah. He said, now, Arthur, normally that wouldn't bother me. Because I mean, that's just, I'm black, they're white, and that's the way folks were back then. He says, but the hell of that was, I had delivered that woman's baby 10 wow. days earlier at two o'clock in the morning because no other doctor would get out of bed. Oh, Art. But we were in public and they would not acknowledge my existence. I, I read later uh, in an in a, a, a obituary about him in all places to Seattle Times. He ended up delivering three more kids for that family because she ultimately said, I will have no other doctor take care of me when I'm giving birth to Dr. Moore. Amazing. That's the power of love and dignity yes. and caring. Oh. Well, so, you know, if I went to one person besides mom and dad, and Lord knows they were formative, it was Dr. Moore. And it took a Dr. Moore because um, to put things in a little bit of humor and perspective, right before I had met with him, I had met with my inorganic chemistry professor, <clears throat> who I told him this story when I got to be a senior and was at that point Phi Beta Kappa. But he said, and I said, you know, uh, I went to him after I got my 71 on my final exam for my second semester of chemistry, having never studied harder in my life. And he gave me, he says, how do you think you did? And I said, I think I did pretty good. I think I, think I got a B this time. I really do. I really do. And he goes, and he hands me the paper, says 71 CR. And I just was defeated. I was crushed. And I said, I just, I, I, he, says, I, he says, you're smarter than this. I know you know this stuff. What to do? And I said, I've lost my confidence. I, I, I always knew I could do it in high school. I never had a question about it. At this point, I get into a test and I just panic. My brain goes blank. I can't think. He goes, well, let's go through the test together. And I said, no, no, no. I'll tell you where I made my mistakes. And I literally, with him in front of me, went through the whole exam and showed him how I needed to do it right. And it wasn't because he'd written the answers and he had just said, wrong, wrong, wrong. And he looks at me and goes, you know, you can do this. And he goes, now, Arthur, he says, let me tell you. He says, I've been teaching for nearly 40 years and I have literally dealt with two, 3,000 undergraduates. And I have to tell you, Arthur, in all of those years with all of those students, you son are the second smartest C student I've ever had. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, well, thank you, I guess. He goes, oh, no, no, no. The first one was really, really smart. <laughs> I walked out and I thought, it's hopeless. <laughs> but Hiram, you know, sort of said, no, you know, you'll do it. You can if you choose to. If it's the right thing for you, you will figure it out. He said, but don't study to make a good grade on the test. He said, study to learn what you need to know to take care of people. Mm, what a difference. It what made for me all the difference. I was never one of those kids in college later who said, is it going to be on the test? Well, I just said, I just stopped worrying about memorizing everything. I just started learning the stuff that I thought would be important taking care of people. And, I, and it carried me through medical school. And that's the way I've taught my whole career. So I owe an enormous amount to Hiram. And I apologize for getting a little, the thing about it is, as I, I warned Ed before we started this, said, I'm going to get emotional because the man means the world to me. And you know what? He practiced into his 90s. Wow. And at that point, I'm in, a, I'm in Atlanta. I'm going to St. Luke's. And I hear that Hiram's in the hospital. And it was not his final hospital stay, but it was near final. And I went to see him. And I went to the, and I went to the registrar. I drove up from Atlanta that night to see him. I knew it was still late. I, think, I mean, early enough, he'd still be awake. And I went to the receptionist who had that classic East Tennessee accent. And I said, uh, ma'am, uh, uh, I'm, I'm Dr. Kellerman from Emory and I'm here to see Dr. Moore. And she goes, Dr. Hiram Moore? I said, yes, ma'am. And she leans in and she goes, is he some kind of celebrity? I said, well, what do you mean, ma'am? She goes, oh my God, we've had people after all, people for days coming in to see white folks, black folks, rich folks, poor folks, connected folks, unconnected folks, and everybody wants to see Dr. Moore. He's got to be a celebrity. I said, he is, in a manner of speaking. Yeah. And that, that's the magic of medicine, like the magic of the priesthood. For all of us, if we find our calling, right. that makes all the difference. And so Hiram was one of the real pivotal characters in my life. And 
but we never talked about guns. We, I mean, I grew up like I grew up in the South in Jim Crow, and I was there for the transformation of civil rights. I was there when our school was integrated. Hiram reminded me as a, as a the student council president, I integrated the cheerleaders. At the time, it just seemed like the right thing to do. I wasn't thinking I was being an early activist, but um, but then you know the the other figure who I never met, but you know, given that we we're going to talk about one of our current epidemics, right, was Marvin Gaye. Yeah, and tell Marvin, us that story. Yeah. Before well, we Marvin, go to Marvin Gaye, yeah. I do want to hear that story, but no. I just want to acknowledge that with Dr. Hiram Moore, we're on holy ground. Yes. That is sacred storytelling. I've got my feet. I've got my shoes off. Um, we're on holy ground. So thank you very much. I would have done what we all have to remember. And I tell this because I've been educating not just students and residents, but faculty. I'll say every person you meet, every student who comes to you, always find time, always listen. Those three hours that Hiram gave me that night completely changed my career. I would have been nobody and nothing. Everybody I've ever touched, every trainee I've ever tried to inspire is because of the three hours he gave me. I once met one of the most famous figures in public health, Bill Fagy, who got me interested in public health and prevention. He was director of the CDC at the time. This was a man who had helped conquer smallpox. I'm a dumb medical student from Emory volunteering at the CDC for the summer. And I go up to maybe get his name on a piece of paper and he gave me an hour of his time and he changed my career. Mm -hmm. So we all have that gift, but we'll never know which young person we changed. But if you give that gift over and over again, the, the old phrase, pay it forward really matters. I've been paying it forward to repay those two guys for my entire career because they both gave me time. I will always have time. I don't care whether it's a junior high student, high school student, and frankly, you know, awards and publications and all that. When I think of the young people or the, even the mid-career or senior people who I wrote a letter for or counseled or helped open a door, everybody they touch, I will have helped. I'll never meet them, but I'll know that that person was able to do something because in some very small way, I gave him a break like Howard gave me a break. To be sure. Well, because of limited time, we do need to go to the Marvin Gaye story because that's so formative as well. Well, this was an incidental meeting in a student center. I'm sitting there literally having lunch in Seattle now. Fast forward, I've done my residency. I'm taking, I'm in a research fellowship and I'm learning about public health because that guy, in Atlanta, Fagy had kind of talked to me some, and I didn't realize until I'm literally in class and going, it was that guy's conversation seven years ago that I'm here. But um, I'm figuring out, I've got this very painful, tedious study I'm doing for my master's thesis. And I hear on the radio that Marvin Gaye was shot and killed by his father in the domestic dispute. And I'm talking to a classmate and I said, this is nuts. I mean, all these people, everybody has guns in their home. They say they have them for protection. I've been working in emergency departments now for five years. I've seen lots of gunshot victims. I have not seen one bad guy shot by a homeowner yet, but I've seen wives killed by shot or killed by their husbands. I've seen people commit suicide. I've seen kids shot accidentally. I've seen all these tragedies involving guns and but I haven't seen one bad guy shot by a homeowner. Surely somebody has looked and just objectively tried to analyze whether on the balance, you're more or less safe if you keep a loaded gun in your house. Well, I, I'm on a research fellowship. I poke around the literature and there was almost nothing there. And having grown up in a gun owning household, having been taught to shoot maybe 10 or 11 years old by my dad, having had that Southerner's appreciation and respect for the power and the responsibility of owning lethal weapons. Uh, to me, it was just interesting. But Marvin got me started. And then when we did the data, it blew my socks off. And it led to my first major publication in my career remains my most impactful. And it changed the course of my career, which is a, a paper 
titled in the New England Journal of Medicine, Protection or Peril, one of the most simple and yet powerful for its time, studies of all time, where we essentially looked at shootings in homes where guns were kept in King County, Washington, which is the, the county which includes rural areas around Seattle. And what we found out was that for every time a gun in the home was used to kill an intruder in self-defense or even to protect someone from another person, there were 43 suicides, homicides, or accidental fatalities. And no fancy statistics, just we just counted the bodies and we talked to the detectives and we went through the case records. And all the time, all I said at the time was this suggests that the, the concept that keeping a gun in the home for protection should be questioned. <clears throat> I thought, wow, and I, I was too young and too naive to realize I was tugging on Superman's cape with the NRA, but I kept tugging more or less for the next 25 years, largely around the guns in the home issue. Later, I got very involved in gun violence prevention, first a little bit in Memphis, but especially in Atlanta. Uh, but it was from a public health perspective. It was not ideological. I still own guns, but not in the house anymore. Right. And uh, but it was an intellectual question. But it but I did, you know, needless to say, encountered a lot of political pushback along the way, which made it interesting. But uh, and and I'd like to say, Ed, after 25 years and a lot of publications and a lot of rigorous science and a lot of federally funded research, that it made a difference. But in many respects, frankly, we are farther behind as a nation today than at the time. Although I do believe there are some fairly obvious reasons why that's happened. Well, we're going to get there before we go there. Art, let's just repeat what you learned in terms of the protection versus peril. Yeah. That is simply very important. And then once yeah. you state that again, yep. I want to go and talk about a process issue yes. and then return to the issue. Okay. But what would. Yeah. Before okay. I do, I just want to say, and I should have said this on the front end to all of you St. Lucas out there, this is me talking tonight. Yes. Or this morning, as the case may be, right. uh, when this airs. Um, I'm not speaking on behalf of my university. I'm right. not speaking on behalf of the health system. Um, and because this is still in American politics today, it's considered year in and year out, gun control or gun injury prevention or gun safety are the second most politically loaded issue next to abortion. And or in the last few years, perhaps partisan affiliation, I hate to say, but, you know, we seem to be in a culture today where every American pays off on another one. So uh, I'm this is me as a fellow former communicant and an Episcopalian speaking from my brain and my heart. My heart led me to the question, but my brain was what drove what I did. Uh, I was never trying to get to a preconceived conclusion. Doctors don't do that, and neither, especially neither do scientists. This was all about what are the data, what does science show? And as I've said for many years, Americans deserve objective, honest, high-integrity information to make decisions for themselves, their families, and their kids. And that's their freedom to choose, but they deserve objective information. They should make it on the basis of science, not on the basis of billboards, or bumper stickers, or these days, tweets. And so that was my motivating says, factor. Excuse the me. The science says. The science says about home ownership. <clears throat> On the balance, if you play the odds, if you keep guns in your home, particularly if you keep that gun or guns loaded and readily available, because you think you'll need it for protection from an intruder, a burglar, or whatever, the odds that that gun will injure or kill a member of your family, the odds that that gun will be involved in a tragedy involving anybody important to you are overwhelmingly higher than the odds that it'll be used in self-defense to protect you or your family. Look at it this way. I didn't say it never happens. It does. Right. And when right. a homeowner uses a gun to kill a burglar or an intruder, it's typically national news. 
But imagine for a moment, if you were taking the Georgia lottery and clearly people win the Georgia lottery, but if the Georgia lottery every year pulled out a name and somebody was the big winner and they pulled out the names of three to five people for execution at random, because you know, you, you enter the lottery, right? Would you buy a ticket to that lottery? I wouldn't. Yeah. But I might win 10, 20, $50 million. Yeah. But do I want to risk my life and know that my odds of being executed outweigh my odds of winning the lottery? Yeah. Very few people would play that, that gamble. And right. yet when people do this, um, you know, you never keep a rattlesnake in your living room. Right. Because, but you know, it would be a great deterrent for a burglar because you realize it could threaten your family or your child. And, and so if you keep guns in your home, cause you hunt, you collect your sportsman, more power to you, but do what any good, careful, responsible gun owner does lock it up. Make sure that only you know the combination or that you have something and do not assume that your six-year-old or your eight-year-old or your 12-year-old doesn't know where the key is and treat it with the responsibility that warrants it. Any good homeowner, any good gun owner respects that and don't believe the ideology. Although ironically, Ed, today polls show that twice as many Americans who own guns believe that guns are effective for protection than when I was publishing my work. Wow. Because the research that I was doing and many others was essentially shut down for a quarter century right. due to political activism. Right. And when you don't have fresh information and you're being bombarded by the opposing view, that's a real problem. We're seeing, we're paying the price right now of, of science denialism with vaccines of all things. And there are people out there that saying, don't trust them. Well, in this case, on this issue, it wasn't a debate of good science versus bad science. It was a debate where basically they said, then there will be no science. Yeah. And all that's left are stories, bumper stickers, assertions, political rhetoric. Right. And, and I think that's a disservice to the American people. They just deserve the truth and the facts and then let people make their own decision. Indeed. Well, for the purpose of this conversation, I know it's not divided in real life, but I do want to distinguish between the issue of gun violence and this issue of not following science. Can yeah. you, you know, one's a content, one's a process, right. although they both get involved in this ideological posturing yeah. that is going on in this country. So let's talk about not following the science of stuff in American culture right now. Can you speak to that? And then we're going to come back to guns. Obviously. Okay. Well, they're the not following science. It's because there are folks realized that, uh, you know, if you speak loudly enough and often enough, whether it's social media or otherwise, you can overwhelm science by just asserting repeatedly a bogus conclusion. Got it. Uh, and you can discredit if you're powerful enough, you can even shut down the scientists, particularly those that, that require federal funding, for example, which has been done. It varies. Uh, I wrote an editorial once called Gun Smoke, and I equated how the tobacco lobby ultimately lost in terms of cigarettes. No big deal. They're safe. You know, remember doctors prescribe camels and all that nonsense. The um, NRA in particular, which at that point had transformed from being an organization that trained people in marksmanship to an organization that became zealous about a, a very whack perception or assertion of the Second Amendment. But the, but the NRA basically took the position, no, we'll just stop the science. And they did that largely by targeting the CDC, which was the only major federal agency funding science work in 1996. Uh, and <clears throat> my work and others was singled out as examples of this. And basically it was not, let's look at the methods, let's look how well it was analyzed. Their assumption was if they, you don't agree with my position, then you were biased, you were lying, you were making it up. And they just kept repeating that assertion. Fact is, you can't get published in the New England Journal of Medicine if you don't do it right. You can't get funded by the CDC if you don't do it right. And my work was not only 
withstood peer review in the most prestigious journals in the world and funded after rigorous peer review, but it was replicated by other researchers who found the same magnitude often and the same directionality. And yet today, the percentage of American gun owners who say they keep their gun in part for self-protection is now upwards of two thirds. When I was doing this work, it was around 40%. And that's because it's been driven by assertion year after year without adequate rebuttal. Um, and for you said for 25 years, we've taken the eyes of science off of the right. issue of gun violence. Yes, and that uh, I wrote the first editorial was written nearly a quarter century ago. I wrote a second editorial with my Seattle colleague of many years, Fred Rivar, called Silencing the Science. That was published in 2012. Only now are we starting to see some research begun again. Uh, so I have a tough time in a sense citing my former studies because many of them are 25 or 30 years old now. I, you know, I'd say to somebody, if they didn't like the findings, let's get some really bright, objective and honest people to repeat and see if they met the same conclusion. Society may have changed. I don't think so, but it might. And again, Ed, you talked about one of the issues that's important for people to understand when we talk about gun violence, gun violence requires two things to happen concurrently in time and in space. It requires a desire to commit violence against oneself in the case of suicide or in the case of violence against another in the case of domestic abuse or homicide, et cetera. The other thing it requires is immediate access to a gun. If there's no violence but a gun, that's a weekend of, of hunting or target shooting with dad. On the other hand, Violence without a gun is a busted lip, maybe a black eye, maybe a stab wound. It's gun violence that's the problem. Right. And, and so the issue here is not that we get rid of all guns. That's ridiculous. That, that, right. that, it'd be like saying, I'm anti-car because I think that right. we can make car driving safer. Or I'm anti-swimming pools by saying you should have a fence around a pool if you got young kids in your home. No, it's about being safe. Yeah. And so if we're safe, guns and people can exist because we're keeping the gun and the violence as far apart as often as possible. We'll never prevent them all, but we can prevent an enormous a number of them. And that's the that's the key. It's not ideology. It's not politics. It's it's both common sense, but it's applying what we know and doing what works. Right. We could do that at the community level in terms of dealing with homicide and gun crime. We can do it in the case of, of uh, depressed individuals and saying, hey, Bob, hey, George, let me keep your guns for a couple of weeks. You're really struggling right now. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll keep them safe. You'll, you'll get them back. All of these things that can make a difference. Well, I want to get to solutions in just a second. But before we go there, I'd like you to please opine and elucidate on comparing what happened with smoking, seat belts, and gun ownership. It seems that we really followed the science and took care of the former two. Yes. What happened with gun violence compared to those? Uh, then and now, it has almost a religious significance. Uh, and I do remember once reading a, a, a book by a very um, well-known investigative journalist who was at an NRA convention. And he was in the elevator with a couple talking to one of the husband. And he said, people would understand us better if they viewed us as one of the world's great religions. It's almost, it, it is a faith. Ultimately, the two core concepts that motivate the gun lobby and I distinguish the gun lobby from gun owners, right? Because there are many gun owners right. that are incredibly reasonable. And if we got time, I'll tell you a real quick story about Colorado Springs. But, yeah. but, uh, but the difference here is that there are two core beliefs. One is that I have to be able to get a gun in a hurry to protect my family, and that if you take guns, if you do anything to restrict access to guns under any circumstance, including mental challenges or criminal records or whatever, then I might not be able to protect my family. But the core belief is even 
deeper than that, is that this is necessary to protect my freedom. To which I turn that on its head and say, in this country, given a history of 240 years of democracy, basically what you're saying is, someday you might need to shoot a pol American police officer or an American soldier. Because those are the only two groups with the power to take your freedom away. And I don't think that's the way Americans typically think. But, but the, the first one, that I need a gun for protection was and is something that is testable and can validate. And the reality is in multiple studies, number of them done in Atlanta, others done in Memphis, at least the ones I did and others have done have shown that by and large, particularly if you have a gun and it's available and accessible, you're more likely to have a mishap, a tragedy in your family, whether it's a curious child, an depressed teenager or a, uh, you know, an angry spouse. Uh, women are more likely to, twice as likely to be murdered by their husband or their boyfriend than to be murdered by a stranger or an intruder. Mm -hmm. uh, it, when women kill, the victim is five times more likely to be her spouse, her boyfriend, or somebody close to her, often but not always in self-protection. Yeah. Domestic violence and guns in the home very volatile mix. One time I was talking with Archbishop Desmond Tutu and he said that his dad had told him, Desmond, you will not, no, he said, stop raising your voice and instead improve your argument. So Art, is that a possibility with guns? Can we stop raising our voices yeah. and improve our argument? I believe it is. And I'll just briefly describe uh, both a very quick, a quick story, but also with a sad ending. Several years back, I was invited by a Memphis college classmate of mine, Ted Eastburn, who is a cardiologist in Colorado Springs, who previously worked with Senator Bill Frist when they were both at Vanderbilt on the faculty. Right. To come to Colorado Springs and talk about guns as a public health issue. Well, I don't know which one of us was more naive, me for saying yes, or Ted for inviting me. Because Colorado Springs is a libertarian hotbed in a very NRA-friendly state. And this was shortly after Columbine and shortly before the NRA convention was going to be in Denver. And here I am. And before I get there, there's a blast fax that goes out in Colorado saying, stop Kellerman from bringing East Coast-style gun control to Colorado Springs. So I get into the auditorium that night, which was an old county commission chamber. You know, this with the steep theaters, kind of like the old operating rooms and the paintings. And it was packed with angry NRA members, bumper stickers on their chest, signs. It was like out of a bad movie. And I'm thinking, I could be killed for giving a lecture. This, this is almost like a lynch mob. They were rabid, except I knew what I was going to say. And so I, I, I decided... I can't run, I'm not gonna be a coward, but I'm not gonna be stupid either, but I know what my message is. So I, I got up in front of them and there's a, and I just said, hang on, before I talk, you all need to know where I'm coming from. First of all, I'm a child of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, born and raised in a gun owning family. My daddy taught me to shoot when I was 10 years old. He also taught me that owning and keeping a gun is a tremendous responsibility you can never take lightly. Well, there wasn't one person in that room was going to argue with that. And it was all true. Second, I'm an ER doc. I take care of victims of gunshot injury. I know what happens when a gun is misused or it gets into the wrong hands. And third, I'm a public health guy. And I believe we can prevent many of those injuries by making smart choices as free Americans capable of thought, capable of making our own decisions if we're given honest and objective information. And that's why I'm here tonight. And finally, I want to tell you all something. I said, when I came back from Seattle to Memphis, Tennessee, and I was back in the South, I knew I was there when I drove up behind a car with a bumper sticker and it said, we don't give a damn how you did it up North. And friends, I'm sure you don't give a damn how we do it back East. And the moment I said that they roared because they all had read that email, that not email, that fax. And I said, so I'm not here tonight to tell you how to live your lives. I'm not here to tell you what laws to pass or not to pass. I'm just here to share information because every one of you loves your kids, loves this community, and wants it to be a safe and a good place to live. 
are we on the same ground tonight? Are we okay with that? And then I proceeded to talk at the end of the night. I didn't get a standing ovation. I wasn't that good. But about 40 of these guys lined up and shook my hand and said, you know what, Doc, we were lied to about you. You're all right. I agree with 90, 95% of what you said. That other 5%, I said, in America, that's a clean win for both of us. <laughs> yes, I do believe this discussion could happen and it would, and it, it ought to happen. Tragically, so much of America today, none of these discussions are happening anymore. Everybody's talking past each other. It's too easy to blast out on Twitter or make a soundbite on talk radio. And uh, there's this hate industry that we've all got to take a few steps back and just realize our humanity, our citizenship, our caring, our common values unite us far more than our differences. And no, I am not running for office. Yeah. So when we look at gun violence from a public health perspective, what are the core things that need to happen? What needs to change? What do we need to advocate for? What's the nub of the whole thing? I'd say the nub of the whole thing is we have to prevent shootings rather than react to them in both medicine and in justice. Because today and for most of my life, the idea has been if a bad guy, usually a guy, does something with a gun, you catch him, you lock him up for years and years, maybe forever, and that will deter other bad guys. Well, guess what? It doesn't work. Now, I want justice as much as the next person, but if we ever think that we'll deter criminality by just penalties, we don't catch them all, and nobody thinks they'll be caught anyway. And, and also, we can't, to use the criminal justice term, incapacitate, which means warehouse generations of people and think that we're going to somehow put all the bad people behind bars so the good people can run around on our own. So reactive policing doesn't work. And frankly, reactive trauma and emergency care only gets you so far. A study I did years ago in Memphis, but we saw the same thing in Grady Atlanta was that 97% of people who die from a gunshot injury are dead within 24 hours of being shot. Our law enforcement has historically been, it starts with a 911 call, followed by an investigation, and if we catch the bad guy or the bad guys, we lock them up for a long time, or maybe in some states, many states, we execute them. And deterrence will make us safer. It doesn't. There, there's just very little evidence that that makes a difference. When you're angry or when you're desperate or when you feel you're invulnerable, you'll do stupid things. Likewise, in medicine and in trauma care, while we are really good at treating victims of gunshot injury, we can't save somebody who's dead on the scene. And if they're brought into the ER without a pulse and we crack their chest, rarely does that get them back. So that the fact of the matter is, we have to keep people from getting shot in the first place. And where law enforcement has in the past, as we did in Memphis and we did in Atlanta, particularly in Atlanta during the time that I was working with local state and federal law enforcement and prosecutors and the community and said, we're going to try to prevent as many shootings as we can and prevent as much violence as we can. During that decade, we cut the homicide rate in Atlanta 55% and the aggravated assault rate, meaning people shot at, at Grady and in other trauma centers by over 50%. And we didn't pass one gun control statute. In fact, Georgia was moving in the other direction during most of that time. But we did take a very, a much more preventive approach. So which practical, means? smart, which means things like uh, not only working with young people to help discourage them from embracing violence and gang activity and other things. And, and the social parts of this are incredibly important. But we also took a very practical approach to doing the best we could to prevent illegal supply of guns to bad actors and to juveniles. We tried to do a number of strategies that increased the risk of getting in trouble if you carried a gun, because there was a perception and is many times, you know, criminals are like, like gun owners. I'm safer if I pack heat. There's an old saying, up beats a draw. And another one is better to be 
tried by nine than carried by six, which basically means better to have a jury trial than to be, um, you know, death. Right. And so, but if, on the other hand, if you increase the risk of getting caught and the consequences, then maybe you're less likely to be having that weapon and you're less likely to grab it in a moment of fear or anger or opportunity. So we use these strategies uh, in Atlanta in target enforcement, and it did make a measurable difference. Now, I will say quickly, Ed, those strategies worked and work when you have confidence between the community and law enforcement, when you have faith and transparency, and when you have clear and ongoing oversight of law enforcement. And where law enforcement blew it, my opinion, not running for office and not speaking for anybody else, was when that morphed gradually but progressively into stop and frisk, racial profiling, I'm in, I'm in power, you're not. And the very communities that these concepts were developed to protect became victim. So today, if I came in and said, let's try proactive policing aimed at dealing with weapons, I wouldn't blame a community for saying, not in our neighborhood. Are you kidding? We've been living under this for 20 years. So I think it's going to take some unique communities and a lot of confidence building before that strategy could be employed the same way. But things like illegal supply, knowing that there are certain gun stores that are disproportionately and vastly pumping guns to bad guys. Getting homeowners to just lock up their guns. I interviewed juvenile offenders in Atlanta, and I remember one kid from Kennesaw who said, I can have a gun in 10 minutes, anytime I want. And I said, oh, big guy, where would you do that? And he goes, I get out of my dad's gun cabinet. He had no idea where the key is. And I'd have it back before he ever knew it was gone. A, 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 a police security officer once told me for a school system, he says, I go to the parents and I tell them, three quarters of the guns in our school system come from your homes. You take care of your three quarters, we'll take care of the other quarter. So we all have a role to play in this. So Art, you're making me think of things I've not thought about before. I'm assuming, that I'm going to assume something, ask you to, well, I'm assuming something, and, but then I want to get to the, the insight. Yeah. I'm assuming that you're not talking about saying that policy doesn't matter. We do have to work on policy. Yes. What you're, what you're introducing here is that you can get so focused on policy that you don't work on changing your community. Yes. In terms of what's going on with young people, what's going on with the relationship between law enforcement officers and the community, and watching where bad actors are getting easy access right to guns and where and where the bad stuff is happening when the bad stuff is happening because it's very often very localized i mean all of these are strategies it's in medicine who's the high-risk patient where can we focus in a community and improve blood pressure so we don't have strokes and heart attacks right you know what are the things that we can do if we simply go back and wait for the ambulance to, i'm an er doc i did that for a career People would say, why am I so focused on public health? Because I saw, I see what happens when public health fails. Yeah. So now I'm here at VCU with the same thing. We're dealing with, we are the place you go when everything is on the line and you're either critically ill, critically injured, or so messed up and nobody knows what's wrong with you. And I'm saying, that's great, we do that. But let's push out in the community and let's prevent as many tragedies as possible, whether it's through preventive medicine, injury prevention, smart public policy. Yeah. But public policy, I remember, it's kind of like when you're working with the congregation, you work in the realm of the possible. right? And so somebody could say, well, we need to right. just ban all handguns. Well, good luck with that. It's not going to happen in America, right. not in your lifetime or mine, but we can make the move the needle. We still lose a lot of people in car crashes every year, but we have reduced the fatality of motor vehicle crashes 90% in the last 45 or 50 years for the great accomplishments of modern American public health. And nobody even realizes it. They just don't know. I cannot believe how quickly the time has flown. Yeah. So now, so I, um, we've actually been talking about one of my favorite questions and that is, where are we now? You've really yeah. been helping me with that. But here's the, here's the question. 
Art, where do we go from here? Uh, I, I'd like to say I'm optimistic. I'm not quite sure that the pendulum is ready to swing just yet. Uh, I am encouraged that we have got more pragmatism at the federal level, but our Congress is still bitterly divided and quite way too many communities and states are bitterly divided. Um, as Americans, we have to learn to talk to each other again. And I know that sounds really pat. Um, if, if we just start believing in science and scientists, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we're gonna start a school of public health in my university. And one of its key issues is gonna be communication. How do you again, win hearts and minds and impart knowledge as opposed to rhetoric and divisiveness. That's the great challenge for public health in this century because great research all day and night, but I don't believe it. I don't believe that vaccine works. I don't believe the climate is changing. I don't believe fluoride in my water prevents my teeth from falling out. I don't believe that raw milk that's been unpasteurized isn't really healthy because this person on the web told me so. We're doomed. And if I don't believe you because you're a Democrat or I don't believe you because you're a Republican or I don't believe you because you're white and live in the suburbs or you're black and live in the inner city or any other stereotypes and we're all identity locked, we're doomed. I don't believe we're doomed. And I believe, let me come back to where we are. The community of faith, the Episcopal church, the St. Luke's of the world have a role to play individually and collectively to do that. All of us being called in our own way to do what we do. The church that you have the privilege of leading on an interim basis is, is, a, is a treasure, not just for the city of Atlanta, but for our country. And I was grateful and Leela were grateful to be a part of it for the time that we were there. And we all, and we miss all of you now. And when we're back in Atlanta, one of these Sunday mornings, it's going to be fun when we get this pandemic behind us by doing the right thing individually and collectively, then it'd be a whole lot of fun to come strolling in one day and give folks a hug again. But uh, I do appreciate it means a lot to me. I think we were kind of all over the map tonight, but I'll blame all that on you. That's right. Um, and I hope that uh, my colleagues at St. Luke's and those who have come long since we departed uh, got something out of this. But again, follow your heart. You follow your heart. You're not working. You're just servant. And that's been my privilege my entire career. What I'm hearing from you, Art, is follow your heart in community. Yes. It, it really, we really do need communities of heart who are going to work together across these crazy polarized divi dividing lines and to say, we can do preventive work here. Yes. You've, you've really helped me on this thing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank it you. It really has. And we can't wait for you to get back so we can hug your neck. Thank you. Peace be with you and peace be all of you, St. Luke's. And take care. We love you. Thanks, my friend. Thank you. Thank, you thank, thank you. you. thank you. Thank you all for being with us this morning. Oh, what a, what a conversation. We will continue this Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. See you next week.